All right, so grab your Bible. You may note that half of your outline is filled in. That is because, if you remember, we did not finish last time. So I filled in how far we went and then left the rest blank. So technically, there's only four more blanks tonight, but it was the bigger piece of the idea, and I didn't, I didn't want to skip over it or rush it. So we're going to kind of have to review, in a sense, everything from last time so that we're in the right kind of mindset to make sense going forward. Now, we're not going to verse by verse redo last week, but we do need the basic idea still going on so that we can understand what's happening here in chapter 12. So we are in Hebrews 12. Um, in a minute, we'll pick up in verse, I think it's 12. Um, but right now, let's just kind of review what went down in the first 12 verses. So just by way of reminder, we've technically already finished our argument. The argument's over. And the argument was existing because we had Jewish Christians being persecuted by non-Christian Jews. And that is so hard to say. Every time I say that, I got it wrong half the time. But I got it right that time. So they're being persecuted to leave Christianity and go back to just Judaism. And so the whole argument in Hebrews is you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. You're an idiot if you do that. Just a lot of different ways to look at it. Through a comparison of what Moses offered, i.e. what the sacrifices offered, what the high priest offered, versus what Jesus has accomplished. And all that climaxed in chapter 10, and then he moved to that final kind of scary day of judgment is coming. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's, it's very eerie, you know, when you finish chapter 10, it's not positive at all. Until the last little bit where he says, but we know you're, you're not those who shrink back. You're those who have faith. And the key distinction then between those who keep the faith versus those who fall away was just simply the word faith. That idea of faith is what makes them what they are. And so he gives a whole chapter of examples of that faith. Now, you remember that's the Hall of Faith, one of the most, probably the most famous chapter in Hebrews, not the most famous verse. Probably either Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever, or the Word of God is living and active. One of those is probably the most famous verse, but Hebrews 11 is probably the most referenced in general chapters. So all of these examples showed the idea of faith. Now, remember what the basic elements of faith were that we, we pointed out when we were going through that? Say that again, Jim. Okay, so you, you have to have a passage of time for faith to make sense. So we, we look at it like this. You're standing here, and you've got this unknown gap right here. Some, some difficulty, some suffering. And maybe it's good. We don't know. We, it, you don't know. That's the whole point. Something. But what's here on the other side? The thing you've been told about. All right, for our for our case, it's resurrection. Um, but a little more granular before we get to the big picture, just some particular promise. God has made a promise. So a good example is Abraham. So God makes a promise to Abraham that he'll receive a son. And then we have that beautiful verse about Sarah. Sarah, hearing that promise, says she received power to conceive. So she was able to walk faithfully and obediently towards the promise that God made. So there's always an object of faith. There's a thing that you're trusting. It's not that Sarah just 
trusted God and so good things happened to her. That's the prosperity gospel. That's not biblical Christianity. She didn't name the thing she put her faith in. God named it. In the same way when Abraham um, was told, go up on the mountain and sacrifice your son. Well, what promise did Abraham hold on to during that scenario? Isaac was... Yeah, yeah, that Isaac would be the one through whom the promises go. So Abraham knew no matter what God told him to do here, no matter what he had to do to Isaac on the mountain, he was coming back with Isaac because Isaac was going to be the one through whom the promise would go. So he could be obedient in something seemingly crazy because he had faith in the specific promise that God had given him. Now, uh, uh, Monica jumped right to it, but the, the chapter 6 is doing this constant kind of low-to-the-ground view, jumps back up, big, grand meta-narrative. And they keep saying, but they never received the things promised. Well, locally on the ground, yeah, they did. Abraham did receive his son. He did receive the, the nation. These, these prophets did receive the particular thing promised, but not from the high-level view. From the high-level view, they have not received the thing promised. And that's exactly why it's the resurrection. So Moses can deny the wealth of Egypt, take the reproach of Christ. In other words, be ostracized, kicked out, do the Moses thing here because he was looking for a better home, a better city. And we finally get to the end of chapter 11, and there's that statement of these people who are willing to lose everything because they wanted to rise to a better life. So the resurrection is the clear key to all of this. And then it concludes the thought, which we get at the very beginning of chapter 12, so where we were last week, is Jesus essentially follows the same pattern, and really he's setting the pattern for us as we look back to this. So here's Jesus, and he has to do this thing. Now, we're just going to call it obedience. And obedience, in his case, involved specifically the cross. He endured the shame because what was set before him? Joy. The word was joy. The glory before him. The word there in Hebrews 12 is the joy set before him. So he has absolute faith. Of course Jesus has absolute faith. He's got no reason not to trust himself because he is God. He knows what's on the other side. No issue whatsoever. There's no gray area for him about whether or not this happens. Absolute faith in that. So he endures the shame. He does the cross. And we get that next statement, so compare that to us. So because we have this cloud of witnesses, let us run the race. So this obedience track is really the race. We need to run that race, lay aside sin, because we want to get to the other side. But then he throws in persecution. So this is where it takes that kind of negative downturn. A lot of times when we're running this race, what kind of things happen to us? Bad that's stuff. What's happening to the Jewish believers he's talking to in this book? They're being persecuted. And so what the author is going to do now with that persecution is say, this is by God's design because he loves you. Now, he uses the word discipline. Now, we spent a lot of time last week explaining that this discipline is not punitive. You remember what we meant when we said that? That this is not God making you suffer for some particular wrong that you have done. That's not what the discipline in this passage is about. The discipline in this passage is about 
you're not the person you ought to be. None of us are. And these things that come into our lives, God is using to train us into holiness. So let's just briefly walk through. We'll just read it so that we're all on the same page. So verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard the lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, actually, just work out the, the theology there. So the discipline is, is what life experience? It's the, it's the pain. It's the suffering. It's the drama. <clears throat> in other words, if you have none of that, what would the implication be? There's no you're, you're illegitimate. So it's assumed that there's pain and suffering of some kind. And I would say, like, this is not to say that God doesn't bless his children. I mean, there's certainly times of joy and goodness and delight and wonder. There's a, there's a microcosm of heaven in the community of faith. It's lots of good, lots of blessing, lots of good things in this. But it is assumed, it is basically guaranteed that there will be struggle, there will be pain, because our goal in life is to model the cross. So when Jesus says, and some preachers misread this, he, he came to Corinth and he said, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And people walk away from that and say, see, the crucifixion is more important than the resurrection. It's like, no, it's not at all what he was talking about. He's saying when he came to Corinth and he wanted to know nothing but Christ crucified, he was going to embody the suffering of Christ. Not Christ glorified, not Christ raised from the dead, not victory in all things, but humility and suffering in all things. And it's assumed, it's expected. So we're illegitimate children if that does not happen. Of course, he keeps going. All right, besides this, we all had an earthly father who disciplined us and we respected them. It's a big assumption. You know, I know that's not true of everyone who, who reads that, but I follow what he's saying. Um, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. So that was the goal. God's doing all of this discipline to share in his holiness. And then in our outline, that puts us down to the last thing we filled in. So the goal of God's discipline holiness, which in this context we're meaning complete surrender to Christ-likeness and to be like him. And then I think the last thing we read was 11. So for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So just in general, why does he think we should embrace suffering rather than escape suffering? It confirms our inheritance. It confirms our inheritance. It does more, though. Helps us to grow. It's growth. It develops our character. 
it, it, it imitates Christ. So it glorifies God directly because it resembles Christ. It glorifies God indirectly because it makes us actually more like him, like in our attitude, our behavior, our character. So it's positive from all of those angles. We don't like it when it's happened. It doesn't feel good at the time. But in the end, we look back and say, okay, that produced the fruit of righteousness in me that I would not have otherwise. So God's using the pain for our good. So now I want to get into this next paragraph is about why it is painful. So we're going to modify this a little bit. And we briefly last time drew that little chart about how our knowledge of where we should be versus where we actually are is always different. You remember what I'm talking about? So so we said, so this is a scale of holiness. So up here is Jesus. And you start down here. You get saved. The hope, right, the sanctification, is that your life trajectory moves upward. Right? Remember this conversation? We used, we used a different color, I think, last time to illustrate reality so that's okay this is the hypothetical and you remember we you know in reality it's never this it's never this straightforward it's there's up and downs through seasons but what happens is when you first get saved you start learning who you should be at a much higher rate than you can keep up so if this is your knowledge of what you should be it looks more like that and so this gap Right here between these two, that causes a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, because honestly, if anything, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's small here, and the holier I become, the less satisfied I am with my holiness, because I'm fully aware of what I'm not. Does that you follow what I'm saying? I think we, if you have any introspection at all, you've picked up on this. And so there's almost this sense in which the more I grow in Christ, the more shame and guilt I might be inclined to feel because I recognize the disconnect. Again, this is a very big reason why it's super important that you pay attention to the gospel over and over and over and over again. The gospel's not how you get in, what well, is how you get in, but it's also how you stay in because you're constantly coming back to this. But... What makes it all worse is the harsh reality is when you're here and you get saved and you're making progress and you're learning more, where should you be? Up there. Right there. Right. You're in sin. Any point, you're not up there. Now, should, how's that make you feel? Hopeless, <laughs> right? Because okay, you don't you don't live there. For all have sinned and fall short of what? Glory. The glory of God. So what's the standard? Jesus. Glory. God, the glory of God is your standard. So at what point will you reach that <laughs> along this road? You're not there. You've always got areas to grow. Now here's what's going to happen. This disconnect between where you should be. And where you aren't, it's not really a void. We might call this your idolatries. Because 
this isn't a, this doesn't represent inactivity. Your acknowledgement of your sin isn't even primarily about omissions. You've got omissions you're worried about, but are you, how aware are you of the sins of commission? You're actually, you're doing something wrong, thinking something wrong. Your attitude is bad. Your, your perception is bad. Your selfishness is bad. So this isn't empty space. This is sin space. Follow what I'm saying? Biblically, it's probably easiest, just from a thinking standpoint, to call this idolatry. The things in our lives that we're still worshiping other gods. And so, now we're not getting real formal because David didn't commit idolatry in the Old Testament, but he did this. So it depends on how you're using the word. You have to follow the distinction. Mm-hmm. So this is more general because I'm not saying you're necessarily literally bowing down to a false god in the back bedroom. If you are, we need to talk about it. You need to stop. <laughs> okay? But you need to stop any, any level of idolatry. All right, so the reason I bring that up is because this next paragraph is technically about idolatry in a certain way. You, you'll see, there, it's, it's, I hate to call it convoluted. That sounds bad. The writer of Hebrews is operating at a very high level, and he'll just use three or four. This is like, uh, what's the ice cream that's got vanilla? Neapolitan. Neapolitan. Uh, he's scooping all three colors at the same time all the time. You know, like in any one paragraph, any one argument, it's not purely one thought. He, he's just... It's like he's at Baskin Robbins and he's got a tub of ice cream that's got everything. And he just scoops out of the whole thing and dumps it out. So it's not purely this, but it is the dominant thought. So here we go. Let's dive into verse 12. That was only like 20 minutes of introduction. <laughs> Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather. Healed. Now, that whole analogy is built around what? Body. The body. But what's the body doing? Healing. What's it supposed to be doing back in the beginning of the chapter? Growing. Getting strong. I should do those things. It's, it's running a race. Right. Remember, that's how the analogy said. The author of Hebrews is very Tiny. very clever in the way he puts all this together. This He said, Let, let's lay aside every sin, every, every weight that so easily entangles us. But now he's not dealing with the weight, dealing with the body. So what's the body in the illustration? It's you. you. Your spiritual livelihood is this body. And we need to strengthen weak knees. I'm not talking about literal knees. It's spiritual knees. What's a spiritual knee? I have no idea, but we can just work with it, right? It's not supposed to be some literal corresponding piece. We're making straight paths for our feet. And we're, we don't want to be lame, put anything out of joint, but rather we want to be healed. Are we talking about physical body healing in this? No, what's healing in this illustration? It's a growth in sanctification. And that, we want to do this as much as possible. Sanctify as much as possible. 14. So some of this is going to seem kind of, you know, just fire in different directions, but he is bringing it all together. Strive for peace. With everyone and for holiness. Okay, so it's like, wow, those seem to be in strive for peace, also strive for holiness. Now, we could make some interesting connections between those two, because sometimes those feel like they're at odds with one another. Being peaceful might mean yielding to sin, whereas being holy might mean offending people. 
So, but I don't know that that's necessarily what he's doing here. I think this is just kind of a rapid fire. Here's some things in your sanctification process. He's going to do this very heavily in chapter 13. Here's a rapid fire list of areas you need to grow in. And I think he's kind of starting that now, and he'll hit it again in chapter 13. So, peace with everyone. Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fall, fails to obtain the grace of God. Now think about that. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What's one possible way you could misread that verse? It is accountability, but that's not a misreading. That, that's correct. It can it can go legalism here. We no. fail to attain grace. Almost sounds like you're the one that's saving. Well, I got to do something to get grace, All right, which is the opposite of what he's argued so far. So that's not what he's saying. But when he says, "See to it that no one," I lost my verse. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Whose grace are you worried about being obtained? Someone else's. So you just use the word accountability. What's going on here with this then? He wants them to act in such a way that the people that are trying to change their mind are impressed. Okay, that's definitely a valid interpretation here. The point is, okay, to use more gospel, look out for one another. He said this in chapter 10, remember? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. This is, this is that same idea. He's assuming a corporate nature to this whole enterprise. So we want to be at peace. We want to have holiness. And let's make sure no one in the camp fails to receive this grace. Now he's going to make an Old Testament connection, and that's going to kind of explain the scenario some. So here's where he says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Now what's a root of bitterness? Jealousy and strife. That's, you know, when we think of the word bitter and bitterness, we immediately think about our relationship with one another. Right? If I'm frustrated with someone, I'm bitter towards them. That is actually not at all what he means in this particular passage. This is more of a, I guess, agricultural farming metaphor that he has pulled directly, almost verbatim, the expression from the Old Testament at... Um, when the Israelites are at Moab, they're getting near the end of Moses' time. Moses is kind of re-preaching to them. He's getting mad, and he warns them about roots of bitterness. And the idea is, you've got this vineyard. It should be good. It should be healthy. You plant bitter things in there, like literally to the taste bitter. What happens? It can ruin what's there. So... Uh, this is exactly the same, but I grew like a whole backyard full of peppers one year. And I was really proud of my peppers. I mean, I had every kind of pepper that I could find. I had habaneros, chilies, poblanos, bell peppers, banana peppers, and my dirt was doing well. This is before I had you know, all the responsibilities of children, and I had no sheep or goats who could eat my stuff, you know, so, or chickens, and I could just... I could actually do this. And so I grew, I grew all this stuff. It was great. Um, I didn't know that there is a relationship um, between pepper plants. You grow them together, they can lose their identity. 
Now, fortunately, in my case, it worked in a useful way um, because, say, the heat, have you ever eaten a habanero? If you grow a habanero and a bell pepper side by side, it is possible for that bell pepper to taste like a habanero. But that's not what happened to me that year. It reversed. Every single pepper in my garden was a different look to a bell pepper. So I, I had those little orange habanero peppers. You throw them in your mouth like candy. No heat at all. Nothing. It was really fun. James wanted to take some to work and, and eat one and then yeah. give some people some real ones. <laughs> I don't think he did it though. Um, but you could have. I mean, these, they looked exactly like habanero plants, but they had... They had a root of bitterness in them, except kind of reversal. It'd be better if they made my bell peppers hot, but you followed the analogy. So what the Old Testament, what, what Moses was saying is if you got a root of bitterness in the camp, I go back and read it. This is in uh, Deuteronomy, it's either 26 or 28, I don't remember. And then you probably have a cross-reference that says where the code's from. It's at the end of Deuteronomy, or near the end of Deuteronomy, and the root of bitterness in the context is idolatry, is we're fixing to go into the promised land. You left Egypt, and what problem did Israel have in Egypt besides being slaves? Idolatry. They were influenced by the idolatry of Egypt. And what problem is God worried about, Moses worried about them having once they get into the promised land? Idolatry. The idolatry of the Canaanites. In fact, the famous statement that's always quoted from Joshua, that's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You back up, it says, choose, for, choose this day whom you will serve, and then we usually dot, 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 as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The context there is Joshua's in a bad mood. He's over it. And he goes, all right, guys, choose who you're going to serve. You can either serve the gods of Egypt or you can serve the gods of the Canaanites. I'm going to serve God. And he's just sick of it. He's tired of it. Right, but this is the exact same scenario, maybe a decade earlier, maybe not even quite that, months possibly earlier. Moses is still alive. He's preaching. He says, if there's a root of bitterness in the camp, you got to get it out. If there's some idolatry in the camp, you got to get it out. Because what's the fear? If you let that root of bitterness grow, what's it do to the rest of the field? It spreads. So you see what he's doing there. So we need to make sure together we're all striving towards this holiness. Because if we don't, and we let the root of bitterness grow, then what's it end up doing? It springs up and causes trouble, and by it, Many become defiled. Now, what's the specific idolatry that they're specifically being tempted to at this moment when Hebrews is written? To get Christ. Yeah, to go to the Old Testament is idolatry. Now, that's fascinating. He even quotes Moses to warn them against following Moses. Because, and we've said this before, an Old Testament without Jesus did not exist until the New Testament time. So they're going to a new religion, a new form of Judaism that's not about Jesus, and that's a form of idolatry. Let me give this fascinating story. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now, there's a lot of speculation in that, because if you go back and read Esau's story, sexual immorality just doesn't have anything to do with the story. So is he just connecting these two ideas, like sexual morality? Oh, and unholy, like Esau, is there a tradition that he's basing this on? We, we just don't know. But it's important to see how he weaves 
Esau. You remember who Esau is, right? So we have Abraham had Jacob, and then Jacob had what? No, wait, wait, wait. No, Abraham had. I know that was like totally broke in my head. Abraham had Isaac, and then Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. And who was born first? Esau. Esau. So therefore, what should what should have gone to Esau? Birthright. The birthright, and furthermore, the, the covenant promises. But God chose Jacob instead, the deceiver, and the covenant promises go through the deceiver. And but that choice happens back in you know time before time. In life, the way this worked out is Jacob and Esau's relationship is a little bit feisty. Um, what's one of the ways they're different? Do you remember? One's hairy and one's not. <laughs> one's hairy. One's hairy. One's the opposite of hairy. I mean, what would you call it? Like hairless? Hairless, I guess. I, you know, I'm not gonna, I always felt like one was masculine and one was effeminate. You know, that's probably not quite right. But that's just how I felt. Every time I read the passage, it feels like that. So you remember the whole scenario. Esau comes in hungry. He, he doesn't have any food. And Jacob, the cunning, you know, I could just see him as this annoying little brother. They're, but they're the same age. But they feel like big brother, little brother, you know. And all cunning. Like, well, give me the birthright. Give me a meal. You know, do I? He and his mom helped him too. Yeah, the mom helped him get the blessing. This time is just straight up, why didn't he feed his famished brother? Because he's a jerk. Okay? That's what Jacob is. But he was the chosen He was one. the chosen jerk. But he, but he's a jerk. Uh, I mean, his name is Deceiver. It's like this, he's living up to his reputation. But anyway, on the other side, Esau is, he sold his birthright for a single meal. So one's a jerk, one's an idiot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> fair, fair scenario. All right, so we, we don't want to be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now get this, verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What is that saying? There was nothing he could do to unsell the birthright. It was over. The decision was made. Didn't matter how much he wanted it, how much he sought it, and the word repent can just mean change. There was nothing he could do. He's seeking to change this or to repent the scenario. There's nothing he can do about it. No matter how bad he wants it, not happening. So how does that apply to what he's trying to argue with these Hebrews? If they apostatize, they can't go back. The decision is now. You don't get to go to heaven and make up your mind. Your decision to leave Christ, well, we read this in chapter 6, permanent decision. This is a threat. He doesn't think they're going to do that. And he made that whole argument. I don't, I don't think this is you. You've got all this fruit of righteousness in your life. I think it's going to pan out. But if you leave, if you choose in this life the idolatry of Christ, that's it for you. 
It doesn't matter how much you want to undo it later. Like it's over. You've made that decision. Right now, he ends with a further threat, and it's, it's, this is how he ends chapter 12. For we have not come, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now, what's he referencing? This, this, this is Mount Sinai. God has come down, and this is when he is verbally speaking to the people. So, so one time he, he's out loud to the whole congregation of Israel, and their response was absolute terror, absolute fear. From now on, Moses, you go do that by yourself, and you just come back and tell us what he said. But this terrifies them. He's saying, that's not the scenario. That was an Old Testament scenario. Right? They, they could not endure the order that was given. Even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Who said that? Moses. But he's saying, that's not where we're at. That's not, that's not the conversation we're having. Can you imagine being in that scenario in the Old Testament? To see the Red Sea parted and walk across on dry land? I can't fathom what that would be like, but the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, but that's child's play. We're talking about the real deal. Verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Now, what city are we talking about here? Yeah, this is the final Jerusalem. This is not this is not Jerusalem over there on that literal mountain. This this is God's Jerusalem. That in the book of Revelation does what? Comes down here. Right, this is that Jerusalem. We've come to that mountain, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What has Abel's blood ever said? Do I? Yeah, cried out for vengeance. You remember the story? Cain kills Abel, and the blood, the ground took it, and the ground called out. So the blood of Abel then is speaking condemnation. But what's the blood of Christ speaking? It speaks a better word. Better in what sense? Restoration. Restoration. Redemption. Payment. You know, wrath absorbed. Propitiation, to use our big word. So those are the comparisons. Either, you know, if they were terrified of Moses on that mountain, how much more then should we be terrified of this? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now if you have a reference Bible, do you see where that quotation came from? It's quoting the Old Testament, quoting a prophet. Anybody see? Haggai. Anybody ever read Haggai? 
It's like, you probably remember, yeah, I've been through high, but do you even know what High Guy's about? Do you remember? Yeah, it's, one of the, it's a very forgettable book. You, know, you just don't remember the context of, of Haggai. Every time you go back to it, you're like, oh, okay, it's real simple, basic message. The temple is being neglected. This is the second temple. This is not Solomon's temple. This is the temple that gets restored later. It's the temple Jesus cleanses. But it's the early version of that before it got restored in this particular passage. And everybody's looking at the temple and going, oh, the old one was better. So it's a disappointing look. And God says, well, I'm going to shake, I'm going to shake the earth. And here's the idea. Shaking the earth in the, in the illustration in Haggai, the prophet, is kind of like, you see the bully shaking the kid upside down in school in a television show? And what happens when he's shaking him upside down? His money comes out. His, his money spills out, and he steals his money. But that's the image. God is shaking the nations, spilling out all of their resources, all of their money, piling it on the ground, and gathering it into Jerusalem. And so he's saying that's going to happen. This is a prophecy. God's going to shake the earth and the heavens and gather his spoil to Jerusalem. Now the author of Hebrews is taking that then and saying, which Jerusalem does that apply to? The final one. Not the New Testament one we see there where Jesus is at, but the final, the one that's going to come down. Yet once more, I'm going to shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, this phrase yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. So the author of Hebrews is going a step further. Not just going to shake the spoils out of the nations. What's God going to shake out of them? Unbelievers. Well, those with no faith. Well, everything. Shake them to death. He's going to destroy it, and then we get the new creation. You see how I was using the illustration? That's the kingdom we've come to. So our kingdom is unshakable. So this phrase yet once more, that's what we read that. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Have y'all ever heard of this thing called image stabilization? Anybody have a camera that has an image stabilization? If you have a camera that's probably even your cell phone camera probably has image stabilization in it. Here's the idea. If you're taking a picture and you're kind of moving your camera, what might happen to the picture? You know, it's, it's blurred. It doesn't look right. And even... so. Take that concept, go to video. Have you ever watched the video that was shaky? You know, what's that make you want to do? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I watched the movie. Well, it wasn't a good movie, but it was a zombie movie. First person zombie. It was like 20 years ago. Probably not that long. Lights out of college. Not only out of college. And it was one of those, kind of like the Blair Witch Project, sort of first person, Cloverfield. I can't remember what this one was called, but it was a zombie one. And it was first person, and so it's like running around, and the thing is shaking, and I literally had to like walk out of the room because I was going to, I was going to spew in there. Anyway, all of that to say, any video you watch with any action has image stabilization applied to every frame. And so when you're watching it, the camera could have been moving all over the place, but instead what it does is it just locks in on a particular thing and lets the rest of the image shake, 
but the centerpiece does not shake. In reality, it, it was shaking in the view, but now you're seeing it from a different perspective. And to be funny, people lately, the technology on that has gotten so good that you can film stuff that's just crazy looking, but stabilize it based on an item that's usually not stable. So the, the video I saw where this happened is a guy had a hockey puck and was flipping it up in the air where it'd go around and land on his, his hockey stick. And do it, he was just doing it several times, except it's stabilized to the puck. So what ends up happening is from your vantage point, the puck is not moving, but everything else is. It's, it's circling around. It's like, whoa, you know, like, whoa, this is insane. Or like you can see, you know, children being crazy if they stabilize to them and they're kind of still, but the environment is shooting around everywhere. Anyway, if you get online and see a video like that, now you know what that is. Image stabilization, video stabilization. Here's the, the illustration I'm trying to make. We have the kingdom now, yet we're being shooken. Shaken? 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 I don't know. We have been shook. Yeah. However you want to say that word, we're shaking all the time. point I'm going to make is that in the end, what we'll find out is it wasn't our kingdom that was shaking. It was everything else. The frame of reference is wrong. Right now it looks like we're shaking because our frame of reference is the suffering. We're going to get to the other side, and we're going to see that the kingdom that we're in is actually not shakable. And it was everything else moving. And it's going to reach a point where it's going to move so much it's going to break and fall to pieces. And here we are in the only unshakable thing that there is. That's the kingdom of God. So the author of Hebrews is saying... Just all this suffering, it's all going to pan out and be worth it in the end. Our unshakable kingdom isn't only future. We're in it now. We have come to that kingdom, to that festal gathering, to that assembly of the firstborn, to that God, to that Jesus, to that blood. We've come to that now. We're going to be all right because our God is faithful. One who promised is faithful. Promise is guaranteed. So let's just be obedient in the in-between. Let's lay aside every sin that so entangles. Let's serve our God. And that's the author of Hebrews' final point. And in the next chapter, he's just going to... Here's a long list of don't do this, don't do that, obey this way, which we'll get into next week. It'll be fun. But uh, any questions on that? Make sense? Oh, I haven't done any blanks that long. Man, I get into it sometimes, guys, and it just... Well, it was great, but we still need a blank. <laughs> All right, so the reason discipline is painful is because it challenges our idols. That's the part that hurts. wouldn't hurt at all if we didn't have them. All right, the unshakable kingdom. And I didn't underline mine, so one of these words is your blank. God's terrifying presence shook the earth before Moses and God's people. So that's that first part of the paragraph referencing that. So what was the blank? Terrifying. Terrifying. All right, next one. God <laughs> will shake all things and make earth his home in the end. This is God's promise to his covenant people. So when we say faith is a trust and a promise that causes us to obey, and that's the promise. He fixes all of this. It's not shakable. We have a good thing, a good inheritance coming. It's perfect, so we obey in the meantime. And last one, our good works, holiness, sacrifice, worship, 
everything else is a response to the grace of God, not the means by which we receive it. So that was in the last verse. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. You see the pattern? We've received something good, so therefore we give an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God our God is a consuming fire. All right, awesome. Let's pray. We'll be done. God, we thank you for tonight. Pray you bless our study of your word. Help us to set our faith squarely on your promises. That you will bring us into this unshakable kingdom, that we will see it clearly on the other side. Help us to set before us this joy so that we can endure the shame, endure the, endure the persecution, knowing that it will produce in us holiness and faith. So God, I pray that you would help us to trust you more each day as we walk in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One more week of Hebrews. What do you want to do next? I don't know yet. Lamentations. Lamentations. We continue the theme of pain and suffering.